It's the summer of 1981, and your dream has come true. You're at Disneyland. Overcome with excitement, you can barely contain yourself and don't even know what to do first. As you walk bewildered through the park and among all the people, rides, and attractions, something catches your eye. It's a poster, but it's not a poster for a movie or a ride. It's something different, something that looks right up your alley. It's a poster for an attraction that you dare not miss. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, we travel back to that summer of 1981 and a look back on the short-lived, somewhat bizarre, but incredibly unique, real, intergalactic rock band created by Disney. It's the story of Star Wars meets rock and roll. This is a history of Halix. What do you get when you combine Star Wars, Kiss, New Wave, Disney, Disneyland, Wookiees, Guardians of the Galaxy, Tron, and rock music. You get Halix, a Disney-created, real-life science fiction rock band meant to capitalize on Star Wars and hopefully lead to something pretty big. Even though this story takes place in 1981, it really starts back in 1977 with the phenomenal success of Star Wars. It's not only a movie that shattered box office records and became a cultural phenomenon, but it created an entirely new fandom. Science fiction has always been popular, but not like this. George Lucas ushered in a new world that seemed so deep and vast that an entire generation was instantly hooked. But back in 1977, The Star Wars universe, as it were, was limited to just one movie, A New Hope. Kids, teenagers, and adults were instantly invested in this new world, and they wanted more. But they would have to wait until 1980 and the release of one of the greatest follow-ups in movie history, The Empire Strikes Back. But if you're a Star Wars aficionado, you know something else existed between the two. Something that could be considered more of a disturbance in the Force. And that was the infamous Star Wars Holiday Special. Star Wars was such a gigantic hit that George Lucas wanted to keep it in the public's mind as we waited for the next movie. In the late 70s and going into the 80s, Star Wars wasn't yet a franchise and the time between episodes 4 and 5 was kind of like a barren wasteland, with fans unaware of what this thing would truly become. Lucas wanted something that would continue the Star Wars mythology, keep us satiated, make sure we didn't forget it, and help to sell toys until the Empire Strikes Back. But that didn't exactly go as planned. What we got was the Star Wars Holiday Special, a ludicrous 1970s 
Variety musical special that is considered one of the worst things to ever air on television. What aired on the night of November 17, 1978, came and went like it was a bizarre fever dream. Fortunately, in 1980, our collective minds would be blown with The Empire Strikes Back, a movie that wasn't just a rehash of the successful original, but took the franchise in a more intense, darker, and more character-driven direction. For people who were already invested in Star Wars lore, The Empire Strikes Back took all of that to yet another level. George Lucas had introduced a vast and layered universe that fans just couldn't get enough of. And at the end of Empire, as Luke, Leia, and the droids stood looking out into space, we knew there was at least one more chapter to come. But that was still years away. As the 1980s began, the love of science fiction, specifically Star Wars, was as hot as it had ever been and people were looking for more content. This is when Disney saw an opportunity, and this is how Halix was born. Even though the world of Star Wars is set in a different time and in space, music is still a part of their world. From the Cantina Band to the Max Rebo Band that were the in-house performers for Jabba the Hutt, music is clearly part of space life. There were also songs like This Minute Now and Good Night But Not Goodbye from the Star Wars Holiday Special. In 1980, there was even Christmas in the Stars, a Star Wars Christmas album. This is a real album that featured Anthony Daniels as C-3PO and R2-D2, and it's a futuristic Star Wars take on Christmas songs. The album, that also features a young John Bon Jovi, was not only a bestseller, but hit number 61 on Billboard and stayed in the chart for six weeks. The song What Can You Get a Wookiee for Christmas When He Already Owns a Comb even entered the Billboard Top 100 singles. Keep Wookiees in mind for a bit later on. The point is that it seemed as if science fiction and music could coexist well. And that's what Disney wanted to create, a science fiction rock band. But what would it sound like exactly? And just as importantly, what would it even look like? One band that was still super hot going into the 80s, especially with their stage show, was KISS. The production, pyrotechnics, and appearance of the band made KISS a remarkable spectacle. Despite their comic book-like appearance, KISS was a straight-up rock and roll band. But the new wave sound was also big at this point in the early 80s. In the documentary, Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story by Defunkland, we learn that the formation of a band wouldn't necessarily be based on talent but more on presentation and appearance. A Disney intergalactic sci-fi band needed to be about show and spectacle. This would lend itself to not only being a Disney attraction, but maybe it could go out on tour and possibly something on television. In 
If this thing was a success, it could go the KISS route, leading to not only tours and album sales, but an endless amount of merchandise. I connected with Matthew Serrano, director of the documentary Live from the Space Stage, and we'll get some insights from him as we go. One of the first insights from Matthew was there just wasn't a whole lot of time to get this thing off the ground. And he told me that behind-the-scenes people said they began working on the project as early as January of 1981, with the goal of launching it that summer. The concept was going to be very unique, and it would require a perfect cohesion between legitimate music and stage performance. Debuting the unique new project at Disneyland would also be the perfect way to test the waters, see what potential the group had, and hopefully turn it into a full album. So that's the basic platform. But what would this band actually look like? Carson Van Austin, a Disney artist who was also a musician, started working on some sketches to bring the idea to life. Van Austin also helped to create the cartoon series, The Wuzzles. Under the band name Starfire, a combination of human and intergalactic performers were sketched out to make up this science fiction band. Like Star Wars, humans often interact with aliens and droids, and it made sense to continue this on into a musical group. Guardians of the Galaxy, but with instruments, is really one of the best ways to describe this unique project. Okay, but who or what would make up the members of this group? This was to be a true band, so some legitimate talent was needed. A call went out for musical performers. We begin with one of the very first people who came through the door, Laura Mumford. Mumford was in a band called Vixen and even performed in some USO tours. In his blog, Jim Magon, who was involved with the creation of the band, noted that Laura Mumford was like a punk rock Snow White. Mumford, a professional and incredible singer, sounded a bit like Pat Benatar, Ann Wilson from Heart, and even a bit of Janis Joplin. But Mumford still had her own original, unique, and powerful sound. She was chosen to be the lead singer of the new project. Next came the keyboard player, kind of a part droid, part vehicle. Since the keyboard player often remains in one fixed position, the decision was made to make them more mobile. Several keyboards were mounted onto a golf cart-like vehicle that was designed to look more futuristic, almost like a mini spaceship. The keyboard player eventually was given the name Mott Rellum, a backward spelling of real-life keyboardist Tom Miller. Miller, who was also married to Laura Mumford, took on the role of this robotic keyboard player, which included wearing a full Stormtrooper-like costume. The direction of the band was going to be all about theatrics and spectacle. And if a robot keyboard player wasn't enough, another creature would take on the role of the bass player, 
a creature that stood out not just physically, but maybe the most recognizable member of this entire project. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. KISS had the towering Gene Simmons on bass. Disney's sci-fi band's bass player was also towering, but looked right out of Star Wars. Roger Freeland played what can only be described as a Wookiee. Freeland, an incredible bass player, wore a costume made of very expensive and very hot real white yak hair. Freeland, who was already tall, also wore giant platform shoes to further tower over the other members of the band while in this costume. And this costume transformed him into a creature that looks like part Chewbacca part panda, and part abominable snowman. The giant Wookiee-like creature was eventually given a name, Baharnoth, and would be impossible to miss on stage. The alien creatures continued. Tony Coppola, a very talented dancer and acrobat, played an amphibian-like alien on percussion. This creature looks like a cross between a Jawa and Orko from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. The amphibian percussionist may have also been a way to capitalize on the character of Yoda that audiences were now familiar with. The character had a fixed percussion setup, but also ran and flipped around the stage playing cowbells or tambourines. One segment during the performance included Coppola climbing a rope to play the tambourine up above everyone. Set against a star-filled backdrop, it was like he was playing his instrument in space. Other members of the band included human performers, Bruce Gowdy on guitar, Brian Lucas on drums, and Jeanette Klinger as a backup singer. The human members of the band still had to wear futuristic-looking costumes to make it look like a true intergalactic ensemble, a Guardians of the Rock Galaxy, if you will. Despite the focus primarily being on presentation at first, the band quickly became a collective of extremely talented artists. And as over-the-top as a Star Wars rock band concept may seem, this was Disney after all, and the group had access to the best costume makers choreographers, and stage designers in the industry. Not to mention, they had Disneyland at their disposal. But as director Matthew Serrano has already mentioned to us, they just didn't have a lot of time. And now, with the band members in place, what do you call this ragtag group of intergalactic musicians? The band started under the name Starfire, but additional names were kicked around, including Squad, 
and Strike. But the decision ultimately was to go with the name Halix. The pieces are coming together, but someone needed to be in charge of this whole production. Someone who could marry the world of real music, but incorporate the Disney production aspect. Enter Mike Post as a producer. Post, a composer, created some of the greatest TV theme songs of all time, including Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, Law & Order, Magnum P.I., Hill Street Blues, and The A-Team. Post also produced the album Van Halen 3. Okay, everything seems to be in place, but we're almost forgetting the most important thing. Songs. Disney and music, of course, go hand in hand, and Disney Records goes back to the 1950s when it began as Disneyland Records. This division of Disney not only released movie soundtracks, but albums featuring music from various TV series and even original works like the Mickey Mouse disco album from the late 70s. Yes, that was a real thing. In 1981, Bambi Moe began working for Disney Records. Since Disney had never created a rock band, a variety of songwriters were brought in to try and create a bunch of songs that would fit the vision for a science fiction rock band. Halix didn't have a lot of time to rehearse or have the luxury of gigging in tiny clubs for a few years like other bands did. Matthew Serrano shared with me that the band had only at least a month to rehearse. And those rehearsals took place at the Disney studio in Burbank. Despite the time crunch, the band still developed a strong and dynamic sound. To me, Halix has a bit of a rush sound to it. A little dream theater with a touch of Van Halen, but still created something unique. And having Laura Mumford on lead vocals brought it all together. Rehearsals for Halix also took place around the same time that another futuristic Disney project was being created a project that members of Halix got a sneak peek at, a film that would come out the next year called Tron. So now with everything finally in place, where exactly would Halix play? Disneyland was full of stages where musical acts played for a short time before visitors moved on to check out other attractions. A lot of these stages featured acts like barbershop quartets, or the clean-shaven sounds of Hooray for Everything. Halix, however, would be something completely different. Fortunately, they found the perfect venue to showcase them, Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland was home to Space Mountain, which also featured the Space Mountain stage. It was the perfect setting and connection to all things space and the future. This is where Halix would play. But Disney wasn't exactly sure about it. In Live from the Space Stage, we learned that Disney preferred recognized bands from the area to perform on the Space Mountain stage, which was the biggest one in the park. They weren't sure about having an unknown band take 
center stage. And they also had to get the word out. A new, unknown, and very unorthodox band meant promotion was paramount. But Matthew told me that the primary promotional focus was just posters throughout the park. But they came up with a poster for Halix that looked right out of Star Wars. The illustrated poster featured Laura Mumford and the band behind her, in space, with planets in the background and beams of light coming out of the guitars. Very similar to the one of the famous original posters for A New Hope featuring Luke with a beam firing upward out of his lightsaber, Leia and the droids alongside him, and Vader and the Death Star in the background. The poster also shared the following info. It says, now appearing, nightly, Monday to Friday at Disneyland, Tomorrowland stage, summer, 1981. Besides the posters, there was one TV commercial and some ads taken out in newspapers. But on June 21st, 1981, it was time for the world to meet Halix. How would it go? There were so many variables to consider. It wasn't just a musical performance, but one that had to be synchronized with lighting, effects, and stage production. It was a rock show, Broadway, and Disney attraction all rolled into one. What audiences saw was pure 1980s electric guitar-driven synth rock and the band launched with a nine-track set list. The 30-plus minute performance included songs like Lightning, Another Light, Anytime at All, and a pretty amazing synth song named after the robotic keyboardist Mott Rellum. Some other songs included Just About Had It, What's It He's Hiding, I See the Light, and Hey There Boys. It was going to be tough to get the attention of visitors who were passing by on their way to the next attraction or grabbing something to eat. But the band certainly caught the eye. I can only imagine being a young kid and seeing a giant Wookiee up on stage playing the bass guitar. There was also fog and lasers, and the entire thing was a genuine spectacle. The production this early on was a work in progress, and the odd cover song was thrown in. But crowds began showing up, especially a lot of kids who seemed to love what they were watching. And how could you not? This was like a Star Wars rock band, after all. There were some hiccups in the production, but as they continued, things improved, and the band learned what resonated with audiences. This is a tough gig, as Halix wasn't opening for another band in a theater already filled with people there for music, but had to capture the attention of visitors. The stage presentation was able to do that, but as a Disney attraction, they could only be so loud and so bold. They also couldn't use things like pyro to enhance the performance. But the presentation was still amazing, considering the fact you had a stormtrooper on a moving keyboard vehicle that lit up 
and a seven-foot white Wookiee rocking out on stage during a bass solo. Chewbacca may have been a great pilot, but he couldn't shred on the bass like the mighty Baharnoth. Along with all that, the drums were also on a riser that lifted off the ground like a UFO with smoke and flashing lights. This was years ahead of any Tommy Lee or Travis Barker solos. And all of this supported Laura Mumford's incredible vocals. She was the true star of Halix. And slowly but surely, the band began to get some regular fans. Fans who were soon singing along to the songs. There were fans who also started to make their own Halix merch, including things like bumper stickers. If appearing on the Tomorrowland stage was a test market of sorts, it seemed to be working. Soon, record label executives began appearing at the shows. Disney Records was huge, but they were a label for children's music. A big rock and roll band needed a big label, and Warner Brothers Records was interested. But it turns out that the label, which had huge acts like Van Halen, Prince, and Devo, was more interested in Laura than in Halix. While this was all happening, the first run of Halix was coming to an end, culminating in a five-night conclusion planned to finish up on September 11, 1981. With the stage show complete, Halix was about to enter the studio. The band quickly laid down some tracks while deciding what the next move was as far as touring or getting on TV. But things were changing at Warner Brothers Records, including the hiring of a new president. But also, things were changing in the record industry. We know how much the music landscape has changed today as far as the diminishing of physical album sales, but this concern was also happening in the early 80s. A November 1982 New York Times article noted that there had been a sharp decline in the sales of pop music records and also the practice among young people of taping music rather than purchasing records. With a new leader at the helm, changes began to happen at Warner Brothers Records. With the executive that signed them now gone, Halix is dropped from the label. This was obviously disappointing. In that New York Times article, the new president of Warner Records said, quote, I'm willing to bet on good new talent and take my chances with it because I believe that good talent always makes it even if they don't seem commercial initially, unquote. Halix and Laura Mumford seemed to check all those boxes, and it clearly resonated with audiences at Disneyland. But were they dropped because the audience was young and not buying as many records as before, or because the band was too gimmicky? Either way, Halix had hit a dead end. And their residency, if you will, at Disneyland was over. Things weren't looking too good. Before they knew it, Halix was done, and the members of the band went their separate ways. This was especially unfortunate for Laura Mumford, who was waiting for more opportunities 
that just didn't seem to come. Mumford unfortunately passed away in 2011, but is still remembered fondly to this day and regarded as an absolutely tremendous talent. Fans from that era and new ones who have recently discovered Halix have come to love the unique band and attraction and the lead singer of the whole thing. A few years ago, there was even a petition on Change.org to the Walt Disney Company to posthumously grant Laura the Disney Legend Award and to, quote, recognize her contribution to the imaginative spirit that continues to make Disneyland the happiest place on Earth and perhaps even the happiest place in space, unquote. The story of Halix leads to another unique and often forgotten Disneyland attraction from 1986. It was part movie, part ride, and part attraction, written by George Lucas and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It was called Captain EO, and it starred Michael Jackson. I have a previous episode all about Captain EO, and The interesting connection here is that the Tomorrowland stage that showcased Halix was eventually torn out to build the Captain EO Theatre. And yet another interesting connection here comes from someone I mentioned earlier in the show, Bambi Moe from Disney Records. She has told the story that while Michael Jackson was at Disney working on Captain EO, he requested to meet her because he heard Disney had a real-life Bambi. So, what is the legacy of Halix? The thing is, there just isn't a lot of content out there. There aren't any recorded singles, albums, or official Disney footage. For years, there wasn't much proof this thing ever even existed. But in our modern era, some content has been revealed. But again, there's not a lot of it. Some of the only Halix footage available is from some home movie recordings shot from the audience and some bootleg audio floating around on YouTube. Were any demos actually fully recorded? And if so, what happened to them? Did Disney ever film the entire production for a future TV special or home video release? Matthew Serrano shared with me that the only thing Disney Archives has on the band is some of the newspaper advertisements. But over the years, more interest has grown in Halix. And it's surprising that more never came of it, as the entire thing seems tailor-made for its own Halix franchise. The concept lends itself perfectly to not only music, but TV specials, an animated series, toys, video games, and comic books, but also explorations of the backstory behind the characters and the worlds they come from. Where are they all from? How did they meet? Where did they end up living and performing? Or did they travel around the galaxy, spreading their rock music to different worlds or systems? There's a deep history in there somewhere, a full Halix universe waiting to be discovered. Today, Halix is remembered fondly by those who grew up then and 
also by people who have just discovered it and are mesmerized by what they've found. There are even Halix music video tributes and covers of some of their songs by people who love this unique project. And Disney is aware. Matthew Serrano also shared this with me. Quote, I do see Halix making a return in some way, shape, or form. Many people at Lucasfilm know of the band now and have seen the documentary. And many people at Disney and even Imagineering, that's the division that builds all the theme parks, resorts, and attractions, know of the band. In fact, the band got name-dropped at an Imagineering panel by Scott Trowbridge at the last Star Wars celebration in Anaheim, unquote. Scott Trowbridge is the Portfolio Creative Executive for Walt Disney Imagineering. Halix has a history and a legacy that lasts to this day, especially when it comes to Disney and music. Matthew also shares with me that a big part of that legacy is all the musical talent Disney has produced since then, as Halix was their first attempt at creating a legitimate musical thing. I'll say this about Halix. I love it. I love the look, the sound, and the entire presentation. For the time period, it's a project that made absolute sense. It was the combination of several genres all rolled into one and executed exactly as it should have been. Everyone involved in Halix was incredibly talented, and Halix exists as this perfect snapshot of pop culture in the early 1980s. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. I mentioned some previous episodes already for further listening, but I have a ton of earlier episodes waiting for you to dive back into them. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss out on new episodes. So thank you again so much for spending your time with me here today. And thank you for supporting me and this show. You are the giant Wookiee to my intergalactic rock band. So I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global stream on Stack TV